Should we go ahead and get started? I think so. Okay. Wanting to switch now from encouragement to honesty. Some of us need to become experts at encouraging our children. Others of us need to speak a little more openly, a little more honestly to them when they're in trouble. Now, what are we doing? We're moving into the kind of communication that the Bible will describe when it uses words like confront, correct, rebuke, reprove. And I think helpful just to acknowledge up front, this is a hard topic for a lot of us. If you are not good at frank, open candor, those words can make you feel nervous. Some people, they make physically ill. Uh, often I have those kinds of feelings with these kinds of words. Not easy to think about stepping into someone else's world to challenge what he or she is thinking. Those words, however, are hard, not just for shy, retiring people. I can't remember ever having met someone who has no trouble speaking his or her mind, who is really longing for someone else to speak to them the way that they were used to talking to other people. So what is it then that makes courageous truth so unappealing both to the speaker and to the hearer? I'm going to suggest that it has a lot to do with how little we've experienced it. Or maybe it has to do with the way that we've experienced its opposite. When we have been on the receiving end of a confrontation that was not designed to help us. The confrontation that was not for our benefit. Times when someone else was just fed up and wanted to get something off their chest and we were the target. They wanted you to feel so badly about doing something that you would never think to do that again. And so you were on the receiving end of volume and threats and bullying and intimidation that kept you safely at arm's length. Other person shredded your self-worth, had cold belittling comments that cut way too close to home. And it was in that moment that just didn't have a sense of the other person being for you, wanting to help you. If that's what you have experienced in terms of confrontation, it's very hard then to think about it in a way that has a chance of being positive. So let me give you a story. A little bit of background. If someone in my family calls you a bossy moo cow, or if they just start making lowing noises in the background for no apparent reason, he or she is quietly suggesting that you've overstepped your bounds and that you're being controlling. So one morning, I'm sitting on the couch. Her daughter was about four years old at this time. We had just visited with some of her cousins, and we were talking about that time back and forth together, and she referred to one of them as a bossy moo cow. This was very amusing to me because Cassie is the one in our family who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. And so hoping, I'm like, oh, maybe this is one of those teachable moments that you read about in, in books. And so I asked very lightly, I said, <clears throat> yeah, that's, um, that's true. Do, um, <clears throat> do, you, do, you, do you ever see any of that in you? And she replied very quickly, oh, no. And because I am who I am, I was stubborn and I persist. I said, not, not, not even a little bit. No, not even a little bit. She is my daughter. So I thought to myself, thus endeth the teachable moment. Except my daughter and I live in a sovereign God's universe. And at that moment, my two-year-old son wanders into the room and he's pushing a cart. And without skipping a beat, Cass pointed to where we normally keep it. And she orders from the couch, Timmy, put that over there. And I just explode off of the couch. And I said, whoa, did you see that? Her eyes are huge. 
I said, this huge cow just came galloping through the living room. It had horns that were eight feet wide. I know cows don't have horns. It had horns that were eight feet wide. They touched the ceiling. That was amazing. I went on and on and on. And my daughter sat there on the couch laughing at me. We laughed together. And then we talked about what she had just done. Now, is that confrontation? Think, of course it is. I'm pointing something out that really needs to change. But it's not scary. She's not running away from me, either physically or emotionally. Instead, she's interacting with me. It was lighthearted, but she got the point. Now, what is it that makes that experience different from the nightmare scenarios that we've all experienced? She knew that my excessive emotion and volume were not for my sake. She knew that they were for hers. Or you can think about another time several years later, close friends and fam family relatives, fam close friends and relatives shattered the peace of my home uh, in a moment of well-intentioned thoughtlessness as they started giving my daughter Barbie dolls. She rarely played with them, but she would spend hours dreaming about them. All those little tiny accessories and the little shoes and the different outfits, that just captivated her. And so she would sit there and turn these things over and over in her mind and envision different imaginary Barbie lands that mattered to her more in that moment than the real world. Not all that different from watching a teenage boy caught up in a video game. So her eyes would glaze over and she would retreat to that faraway place. And it was like none of the rest of us existed. We were having one of those times and she had been flipping through toy catalogs, impassioned by the latest styles and the accessories, deeply lost in Barbie lust. I knew I needed to talk with her about it, and so I had thought through carefully the night before what I needed to say, and I sat down with her the next morning before going off to work. And we talked about what I'm seeing, talked about the effects that it seemed to be having on her, talked about the effects it seemed to be having on us, and then I just said real tentatively, it um, kind of looks like you love Barbies too much again, huh? And she nodded, and she looked at the ground and said, yeah... And you love tools too much, Daddy. <laughs> and both of us burst out laughing because she nailed me. I can so easily do with tools what she did with Barbies. So I'll find myself in home improvement stores, walking up and down aisles, gazing lovingly at all of the power tools that I already have. And I'll find ways of rationalizing in my mind why I need a 15-amp circular saw because the 13-amp circular saw isn't quite powerful enough. And I don't really have enough yellow tools, and everyone knows that yellow tools are much better. I love tools way too much. Cassie's right. And so we laughed in that moment a little bit more, and I reminded her that we had seen something else. We had seen God work in her life and in mine in the past. And we took time then to pray for each other that we would not love God's creation more than we love him. It was a time that underlined what? A mutual need. Mutual need that made us peers at the foot of the cross. In other words, there's a way to confront people that actually draws people together rather than driving them apart. It's a way that mirrors what God is doing when he speaks honestly. It can be scary to think about God rebuking people in general, Really frightening to think about him confronting you personally. 
But if you look past what he says to why he says it, you start asking, what is it that he hopes for when he confronts? He's hoping that you'll actually see what he says and that you'll agree with him. He's longing for you to stop going in the same direction. He's longing for you to turn around from what you've been doing. Why does he want that for you? <laughs> so that your life will actually be better. So that you won't hurt yourself. And so that you'll draw closer to him and closer to others. In other words, as you read through scripture, God doesn't confront to break relationships. They're already broken. He speaks honestly to restore them. And that's different from the way a lot of us think about confrontation. We often envision people be as being somewhat close before a rebuke, but we're concerned that if we do confront, then that's just going to drive people away. And because we don't want to put any more distance between ourselves and someone else, we pull up short at times and don't say what needs to be said. And God has a very different perspective. He knows that that distance is already there. He knows that you're already estranged. And so when God confronts, it's for the purpose of getting rid of that thing that's standing in the way so that people can be brought back together again. God's goals are that by hearing him, you won't harm yourself, you won't harm others, and you won't damage his glory. All of those things work together at the same time. So if you're speaking honestly into someone's life like God speaks into yours, you're trying to keep that other person from ruining their life. You're trying to rescue him or her. That's kind of the phrase that I use in my mind. James says it this way at the end of his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So at its most basic, if you want a metaphor, speaking honestly, what is that? That's going after someone with words to bring them back. You're on a rescue mission. It's when you see someone in danger and you pursue that person so they don't ruin themselves or hurt themselves. Who's going to benefit most from that interaction? <laughs> it's not you. It's the other person. When that other-centered motivation drives you, you'll find a way to communicate to someone something along the lines of, please hear me, so that you don't end up hurting yourself, so that you're better off. Let me give you a couple of practical ideas, two of them, both of which I think are counterintuitive. They're at least counterintuitive for me. One of the best ways that you can create a context for positive honesty is by first sharing how you yourself have struggled. One of the first ways to do this is by being open with your children about the hard places that you've walked in life. And I'd like to just read briefly Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And I want you to pay attention in this passage to all of the details. This is right after Jesus has been baptized. Chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry, no doubt. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You know an awful lot about that time of testing. You know Jesus' location. You know that he's in the desert for 40 days. You know what he was doing there, that he was fasting. You know the results of his fasting. He was hungry. You know that another person, Satan, was there and that a conversation took place. You even know the content of the dialogue that took place between the two of them. You know so much that you could easily create a movie script. You could give stage directions. But you also learn things here that are beneath the surface. You know that for Satan to offer the things that he did, that they had to be things that were tempting to Jesus. You know that Jesus would have liked to satisfy his physical cravings. You know that a shortcut to regaining the rule of the world could appeal to him. And you know that people recognizing his glory was something that could distract him from what his father had called him to. As you read this passage, you not only see things physically, but you also get a sense internally of what pushed and pulled Jesus. So here's the big question. How do you know all this? Nobody else is around. John's not over there scribbling notes on the sidelines. Peter's not over here with the video camera. There's not even someone hanging out from that crowd, the crowd that's always around Always seems to be in the background. Jesus and Satan are all alone. So how did you get this information? Especially the deeper look into Jesus' emotional and spiritual life. You now know things about Jesus that you have no ability to know. Things he did, things he said, things he experienced in his attitudes and his feelings along with the specific nature of his temptations. How do you know all those things? If you think about it, you only have two options. First, the Holy Spirit could have revealed them directly to Luke. That's possible. You find that in numerous places in Scripture. Creation of the world in Genesis 1, the prophetic visions and dreams that people had. That could have happened here as well. Kind of lean away from that based on how Luke describes his method. Luke was a medical doctor. By training, he carefully researched Jesus' life. He tells us that he did that by relying on eyewitness accounts. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And he gives you the sense there that if what he was writing did not have a personal, reliable source, he wasn't going to include it in his narrative. That's the second possibility, that Luke heard all of this from eyewitnesses. Problem for Luke was that in, those, in that passage... There are no eyewitnesses, except for Jesus. Luke, however, is a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. He did not have the opportunity to interview Jesus. That leaves 
Jesus's friends who were not physically there at that time. So if they knew what happened in the wilderness, it's because why? Jesus told them. So that they could then relay those accounts to Luke. In other words, what you're reading in those first 12 verses is the product of relationship. It's the product of Jesus sharing his life with his friends at a deep heart level. But the subject that he chose to share was things that stressed him out and tempted him. And that amazes me. Here's an account in which we need God to fill in the blanks, and he did. He either did so by Jesus sharing himself in normal ways, talking with his disciples, or by, or by the Holy Spirit extraordinarily revealing these things to Luke. By the way, if that's what happened, then my point is actually stronger about the lengths that God takes in order to make himself known. And what does God choose to share Moments of extreme temptation, along with the specific content of those temptations. He parts the curtain of his soul to give you a glimpse of what takes place within himself. Which makes me ask, is that the way that I tend to respond to my kids when they're struggling? Is that how you respond to your kids? When they ask what life is like for you growing up, when you're sitting around the dinner table and someone asks how your day was do you share yourself with them at this level you realize Jesus could have given a brush off answer to how are you when the disciples are asking he could have said well you know when Satan tempted me I quoted scripture that would be true but without the details you would have a sense of being cheated <laughs> Like he's withholding himself from the conversation. That he's unengaged, reserved, unoffered. And his friends would realize pretty quickly, oh, okay, I, I can't go there. I'm not allowed to know too much about you. Instead, Jesus responds with, here's how I am responding internally to what I'm experiencing. I want to honor my father in heaven. And life on this planet is hard. I'm tempted to be pushed and pulled around by what's happening. Tempted without sin, but I'm tempted. I feel jerked around, and here's how I'm handling it. Jesus shared himself with his disciples. And he shared himself with you. Because those conversations weren't simply for the guys standing around 2,000 years ago. God made sure that those accounts got written into Scripture, and then he preserved those things for 2,000 years, because why? He wants you to know those things about him, too. Those passages are not information. They're invitation. Invitation to go deeper with God than maybe you've been comfortable with. You should be amazed here. We're being invited into the Trinitarian community. There are clearly places where we cannot go. God is still high and holy, so superior to us that the theologians would say he's transcendent. But recognizing his transcendence just underlines you ought to know nothing about him at all. To, become, to be invited to become familiar with the inner depths of our God is a gift that goes beyond words. You see his heart here? 
God's not interested in a long-distance relationship with you where he hides behind a wall and just gives you orders and rules from the other side. Rather, he longs to share himself with you so that you know him deeply, so that you know him intimately at a level that is almost frightening to think about, <laughs> to know the inner workings of the one who created and sustains the universe. That's scary and incredibly alluring. He actually wants you to know him. Not just things about him, not facts and figures and information, but to know him way down deep. That means that if I'm only, if I'm satisfied in managing an amount of data about him, I'm actually missing what he looks for and longs for. He longs for connection, longs for bond, to forge a bond with his people. Not because he's needy, you never get a sense that he's going to lose his bearings if we all reject him and turn him away. But he talks like this because he's offering you the very best thing that there is in the universe to know the one who made it. And having that experience of him then should lead you to want to share yourself in the same kind of way. At least that's what it does for Paul. Paul talks about not his temptations. Paul talks about his actual failures. And he does that as a way of generating relationship. For instance, let me take you over to Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Paul says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Think about this. The master theologian who explored the mystery of Christ, who wrote most of our New Testament scriptures, just said, verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. What I'm doing doesn't make a bit of sense to me. It's crazy to do the things I hate to do. I don't get it. I don't get why I do this. You can almost hear his confusion, his frustration. He starts to write in circles. For I do not do what I want, but, the, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. It's as if he's saying, I like what I see in the law. I agree with it. I know that if I loved my neighbor as myself, this would be a good world to live in it, and I want that good world. I want a world where you trust me. And I trust you. I want a world where I want the best for you and don't want to use you. I want a world where I'm honest with you. Where you're honest with me. Because we know that we're not going to hurt each other with what we know about each other. I want kids to experience that world and grow up in that world and become that world. And at the same time, I ruin that world. There's this deep soul struggle within Paul. 
It's not past, it's present. Go back through that passage, you realize all of the verb tenses are present. Paul's writing about right now, not some historical abstract wrestling that he describes from the past. Present, restless, ongoing, personal struggle. Instead of doing good, I do what I hate. I do the things that ruin relationships. While you're talking, I'm spending more time thinking about what I want to say than actually what you're trying to communicate. I run over top of you. I ignore you. I obsess over things you've done to me, and I hold them tightly in my mind, refusing to let them go. And I spend time thinking long and hard about how to make you pay. None of it's ever satisfying. It only drives us away from each other. I hate it, and I do it. He is so explicit with his struggle that we all recognize the same wrestling in ourselves. We all identify with him. But then he points us beyond the struggle to a deeper reality. That we've been given a new nature by the God who rescued us. He says, that's my real nature. The me of verses 17 and 20 that really counts. The true me is no longer wrapped up in doing evil. Instead, there's been this internal change. And so Paul's saying, I can still do bad things, but I don't love them anymore. Instead, I want to do something different. I desire something so much better. My fundamental identity has changed. And here's the payoff for you and me. So is yours. Despite the times that you do what you don't want to do. So as you keep reading Paul's letter, you learn that there's hope for you. That God will never give up on you or allow anything to get in between him and the new you that he's made you to be. And so you walk away from this passage with hope that God is bigger and more invested in rescuing you than you are invested in whatever it is that you've been doing. You walk away with hope that none of what you've been doing is bad enough to keep Christ away from you. How did you get there? Paul took his own life, his own experience of getting tangled up in sin, and offered that to you relationally with words to give you hope that Christ will rescue you as well from you. And that goes a little bit counter to the way I think many of us think. So you can almost imagine someone a couple thousand years ago coming alongside Paul and saying, you know, Paul, <clears throat> got some issues here. There's some things that you need to take care of. Probably shouldn't be in ministry right now if you're this tied up in yourself in this wrangle. And um, maybe you should try to get some help. You know, see a counselor. Something. Once you've straightened that out, then you'll be ready to minister to other people. Paul understands a deeper truth. He realizes he's never going to get beyond his need of Jesus. But he also realizes that that reality does not keep him out of ministry. Instead, it can make ministry possible. He builds a relationship with people on the basis of a shared need of Christ. And if you understand the background of the book of Romans, you realize these are people he's never met. And so he leads what? <laughs> with his worst foot forward. He leads with the things that he's done wrong. His struggles don't isolate him from other people. They are the bridge that actually connects him with other people. And in that sense, your failures, you need to use them. Good night. They cost you near enough. Use them to build bridges with your kids. Speaking about your own experiences of needing Christ, it's an important part of calling your children to experience grace on their own. 
Now, talking about my failures is not something I've ever found easy. By nature, by training, I'm insecure. I'm hypersensitive. I've worked hard at projecting an image of someone who's got all the right answers and, and, and a life that backs them up. And clearly, that, that can't be true. That's just fiction. I'm just as weak and rebellious as anyone else. And yet, I've clung to that image in the hope that it would bring me the respect that I've always wanted. I remember being amazed. I went to a church where the pastors would regularly talk about their own sins and their failings. Very bad for my image-building agenda. <laughs> really good for my soul. I wondered as I'm sitting there thinking, how do you get the grace to admit those things to anyone, much less announce them publicly? Here are people who are saying things through loudspeakers. They, they were saying things that I wouldn't whisper privately. That not only amazed me, it helped me. Because as I watched, heard them wrestle through their failings, it helped me interact better with God, gave me a sense of how to interact with him, how to interact with other people. As my pastors confessed their sins, I realized life doesn't end when my image cracks. Instead, the cracks can be what? They can be the beginning of real integrity of honestly relating to others on the basis of grace, not on some imaginary image. My pastors demonstrated the value of confessing sins for the benefit of others, but I still had to learn that by experience. It was painful, <laughs> it was slow, and it was really, really worth the effort. I've seen my own family benefit as I have learned to be a little more transparent about my shortcomings like when I've told on myself to my kids for gossiping, for bullying, being violent, stealing, eating too much, drinking too much, seeing things that I shouldn't, lying, manipulating, cheating, losing myself in entertainment and pleasure. And I've noticed that as I confess my sins and as I confess how my sins are just like my children's sins, that that actually helps us forge a deeper relationship, a helping relationship that has a chance of helping them in their struggles. Many years ago now, I was standing at our back door and I'm watching my two sons outside play, and it sure looked like the older one tricked the younger one into bending down so that he could bounce a ball off of his head. And it's one of those moments where you, you think it's Saturday morning, and you, you, you look out and you think, I didn't see that. Think, if I didn't see that, I don't have to do anything about it. I, I, let's say it a little more godly. I've been trying to develop the patience of being slow to anger, not to jump to evil conclusions about others. So I did nothing, hoping I was mistaken that he would figure this out, and he did it again. And my cynical self wants to say, well, you know, that's why we had kids, so they could learn to practice their bullying techniques on each other. I've watched him now bang his brother twice, twice that I've seen, and I'm still deciding that maybe patience is the better course of action. I'm clutching my coffee mug a little harder now. I'm hoping that at any moment, it, the theologians all say he's got a conscience. I'm hoping that at any moment that kicks in. And he proceeds to prove my hope groundless one more time as he does it again. And now without a moment's hesitation, I'm no longer practicing patience. And I yank the door open and I shout in my most sanctified voice, Boy, get in this house! I march him into a back room, and I am just livid. 
I know what it's like to be picked on as a kid. I'm incensed when I see someone bullying someone else. So I start to lay into him verbally, long list of what he's doing out there. I ask questions that there is no good response to, questions that pin someone into a corner. You're such a big man to pick on a two-year-old, aren't you? Mercilessly sarcastic in my assessment of his character. And he responds to my anger by evading the issue with every device he has at his disposal. He pretends ignorance of what I'm talking about. He supplies no voluntary information, sits back waiting to see what I know and what I don't know. He will not look at me in the eyes, stares at the floor, the walls, my shirt, anything except me. And now I'm getting more upset. I find myself thinking things that good people don't think. I'm tempted to hurt him. I want him to feel the injustice of what I just saw out there. And I start to rationalize this to myself. I think maybe if he experiences what he just did to his brother, that'll teach him not to do it to others. And it suddenly dawns on me in that moment that I'm tempted to do exactly what he just did. I am trying to bully him in the same way that he's bullying, on his, bullying his brother. And it dawns on me, I'm just like him. And I am so grateful for God in those moments giving me a conscience that at times works and his Holy Spirit. Otherwise, I know I would completely ruin all of my relationships, including this one with my son. I'm a little deflated. The truth starts to slowly seep in around the edges of my anger that we're pretty much the same person. Holy Spirit steps in more aggressively, suggests maybe there's a more redemptive way to talk to my son. <laughs> and then I remember a time back in elementary school when I hurt a smaller boy repeatedly one day. And I deflate a little bit more. And I remember how intoxicating the taste of misused power can be. How you hate what you're doing and feed on it at the same time. And I remember how hard it is to get past that guilty pleasure. And now my ungodly anger is just flat. And I started telling my son about that time when I was younger. And instead of just enduring me, he looks up and he starts to ask questions. I have found this dynamic over and over and over with my children. When I start to confess how my sins are just like theirs, their heads pick up. The pattern in the rug is a whole lot less interesting. And they're engaged in what we're talking about. They recognize that we are basically the same, but you have to go beyond that. You have to go back where Paul goes, they start to realize, man, if there's hope for dad after the horrible things that he's done, then there's certainly hope for them. It's that glimmer of hope that I see in them that has encouraged me to keep opening up. See, as long as protecting myself remains my primary goal, I'm not going to talk about anything that I've done wrong. But as soon as helping someone else grow in their faith, as soon as that becomes more important to me than protecting my reputation, I'm willing to open up my entire life to whatever extent is helpful for that person. Paul exposed his life to help others. 
And in doing that, he taught people to do the same thing. Other people taught me. I get to pass that along now to my kids and, I guess, to us. Same dynamic plays out in personal ministry. Confessing my sins to people who come looking for help makes me more approachable, whether I'm counseling, discipling. People know that I understand the need for mercy, not in some kind of abstract formulation. And because they know that I understand what that is like, it gives them hope that maybe I'll treat them mercifully too. Which then gives them the courage to confront their problems instead of hiding them. See, in a context of mercy, confessing our sins to each other is contagious. When you do that, it draws sinners closer to Christ. It purifies his church. People expose what's going on in their hearts and lives. So think about the opposite. When you keep silent, when you won't talk about your temptations and failures with your kids, ask yourself, why? What keeps you from leading out like Paul does, like Jesus did, talking about his temptations? Are you trying to establish your own glory? Longing for others to recognize your achievements? Do you need people? Do you need yourself to think that you're successful? You have a successful career. That you're a good mom, a loving husband, a responsible homemaker. Model Christian who reads his or her Bible daily, loves attending small group. See, if success in any of those areas controls you, you will find it next to impossible to admit when you fail. You won't use your sins, past or present, to praise Christ or to help anyone else. Instead, you'll take those harsh outbursts and you'll bury them. Your critical, cold exchanges with your spouse, no one will ever hear about. Your financial irresponsibility, your addictive patterns, buried. When you're consumed with maintaining an ideal image, you can't talk about the way that God has redeemed your sins and failures because you have to talk about sins and failures to talk about a redeeming God. When that's your goal, please hear this, you'll be of little help to others. You'll either be too lofty for anyone to imitate, including your children, <laughs> or you'll lose credibility because they'll understand, no, you don't always do the right thing. It's not why Christ lived, died, and rose again for you. He did that in part so that you would be able to live freely and openly, not only before him, but before others, especially your children. You need to confess your sins in order to give them permission to confess their own. It's a good thing when sin is out in the open, right? Because then you can actually deal with it. People who know God become people who not only examine themselves, who confess their failings to him, they also speak freely of their past. Why? It honors God and it helps people. Your kids need to hear that from you. It'll give them hope. Hope that not only can you relate to them, but hope that maybe you have something to say to them that will help them in their struggles as well. Let me invite you to take about five minutes together. Talk together. Ask, ask each other. Have you ever seen someone take a risk to confront you with something? And then you appreciate them after they did that? Or what do you think your children need to see about themselves that you've been afraid or reluctant to bring up? Take a few minutes to talk together, even pray together. 
and then uh, we'll take our break and start up again at 2 o'clock.